Waverly Knobs Entertainment presents the Branch Out Podcast with your hosts Evan Charles Anderson and Tatiana Ivan. We discuss all the exciting facets of digital media and marketing for businesses and professionals. Our goal is to empower you so you can increase your knowledge, engagement, and brand identity. Let's get ready to branch out. Thank you for joining us once again on Branch Out. Tatiana and I are currently in beautiful LA working on a few projects, but we wanted to make sure we got this special episode out to you today. Now, we've taken the words of wisdom segments from each of our most recent interview episodes and compiled them into this one episode. So if you haven't had time to catch up on all these awesome interviews, you'll be able to get a taste of what they're all about. We have segments from Larry Yu of Kite Global Advisors talking about thought leadership, Dan Taft of Climb It touching on social entrepreneurship, Tom Shapiro of Stratabeat taking on neuromarketing, and Charles Smith from the law offices of Charles Sanford Smith diving into the legalities of marketing in the cannabis industry. But, and there's always a but it seems, before we jump into these exciting segments, we wanted to let you know that Well, if you love what you hear, you'll have the opportunity to meet several of our past guests in person. We're launching Branch Out Live, the digital media and marketing event. We'll be having networking, live talks, and much more. Now, this will all be happening in Cambridge, Massachusetts on July 20th. Early bird tickets go on sale Thursday, June 1st. So make sure to purchase your tickets as there is limited seating and you won't want to miss out on this opportunity. More information per usual can be found in the description of this episode. Now on to your words of wisdom. Enjoy the episode and we hope to see you July 20th. You know, to kind of put the cherry on the top for new writers out there or even new businesses that are either struggling to get their voice heard or what have you, what do you recommend that they do, you know, right now, right out of the gate to create something meaningful, some really intensive kind of conversation with their audience? I think there are three things, really. I mean, first is, uh, as, as lots of writers would tell you, know your audience. And that doesn't just mean know who they are, uh, although that's a start. Um, <laughs> you, you really need to know what's on their mind. Ideally, show some empathy for, you know, look at the world from their perspective and think about what they need to hear from there may think of it in terms of pain points, or you may think of it in, in terms of um, their uh, everyday experiences and understanding their experiences. You have to place yourself in their mind in order just to really sort of start that conversation. And by the way, have a conversation, right? So a conversation is two-way, so listening is, is a big part of that as well. So you can just share, me, 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 look yeah. at me, look at me, this is what I do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you listen first, often you'll have a better response that, that might resonate with your, with your audience. So that's the first piece. The second piece is probably just around research. We've talked about it a little bit, but we really stress empiricism as something that's, um, that helps to back up. Uh, you can be bolder in what you say if you have something to back it up. And it also can be more memorable when you have uh, data behind uh, what you're trying to assert. And then the, th- the third is to be multidisciplinary in your approaches. Uh, we, we try to assemble teams with mixes of social scientists and, you know, economists and finance experts and just, just to have people look at problems from different perspectives. And uh, you, you often get kind of crazy, creative, interesting perspectives that turn into new, new ideas because of that. 
So, you know, get out of your space, think from, think from different disciplines, uh, try to get input from different disciplines, and, uh, and you may come up with something really kind of interesting and, and out of the box. Nice. So basically assemble a team of Avengers and go fight the world's problems. I like That's, it. That would be a good answer, yeah. <laughs> what would be the next steps for them? So what would be the next steps for them to get involved with climate change or kind of the industry that you're in of, of supporting these industries or these people, these companies that want to bring in sustainable energy and a new way of doing something? The most obvious way is to look for um, the uh, new term that's becoming more commonly used is impact investing. Investing for positive impact. Earlier we were talking about the idea of social entrepreneur. The, um, that's kind of shifting a little bit because social people equate social with social media or socialism. And it's not, you know, if there are some people obviously who think that if you're uh, a tree hugger, you're automatically a socialist and you want the government to redistribute the money and all of that, whatever goes along with socialism. And that's, that's not the case. This is capitalism. This is free market capitalism for doing good for yourself, for the planet, for, for everyone involved. So next steps would, for me, would always be look for um, impact investing. If it's um, what we call retail investors, people who have, you know, a couple thousand dollars in their 401k or something like that, you can actually convert that some of the money in your 401k into a self-directed IRA. With the self-directed IRA, you can invest in almost anything. So if you want to support your community solar project and earn, you can earn income, you can earn a, a return on your investment like that support you know local solar community-based solar there's so many different things that speak to different people's hearts you know some people are into renewable energy some people are into helping people relocate because of because of the climate change there's all kinds of great nonprofits if you're looking to donate to to help people cope with the um, changes climate changes but investment there are a lot of different ways to invest it's it's all readily available online in this instance but with the time that we live in, we are bombarded by a lot of digital noise. And we do have a lot of people also trying to hit us with these emotional tactics. So, you know, how do we evolve from that as a, mar as a marketer, as a, a business? How do we get out of that kind of sea of sameness while still using some of these tactics that, of course, work? But how do we make it different? How do we kind of evolve from this point? And that's a great, great question because... We are bombarded with information and we're, we're in information overload, right? It's, it's cognitive overload. Our brains physically cannot handle it. And so the brain is actively trying to filter out as much as possible. Oh, wait, I have a Facebook notification. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was already tweeting earlier back at someone. So. <laughs> so, so, right. So we are hit with anywhere from 3,000 to 5,000 marketing messages every single day. And that doesn't even include social media. So imagine if you add the social media messages, it's just it's it's unbelievable how much information is is out there. And uh, our brains constantly have to filter through and figure out what's important, what's not, what's relevant, what's not, what's intriguing. You know, what what do I need to spend time on and what am I going to ignore? We've created a world that has 300 exabytes of human made information. That's 300 followed by 18 zeros. 
just a few years ago, Google estimates there were only 30 exabytes of human-made information. We've created more information in the last couple of years than in all of human history before us. So here, here's a challenge for marketers. Our consumers or our buyers are, are constantly inundated with information, plus the human brain by nature wanders at least 30% of the time. Sometimes as much as 40, 50, 60, 70%. And if you look at my daughter studying her homework, I would say it's more like 90%. <laughs> it's, it, so, okay, as a marketer, that's tough to deal with. If the human brain naturally wanders, right? It, people are not reading every word in our marketing messaging. Even though we spend hours laboring over every single word, our audience is not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, their, their brain is trying desperately to rule our message out. The, the brain is a, it's a prediction engine. And so what it's trying to do, and this dates back to you know, the time when we were cavemen and cave women and, and just trying to survive, right? So the old brain, the core of the brain, uh, is in fight or flight mode all the time, even today. Now, the threats that we face are, are a lot less ominous than, say, a, a, I don't know, a, a big tiger or a lion right in front of us. Um, but the brain, that part of the brain, the old brain, has, has not evolved from that point. It still is trying to figure out how to keep us safe, right? right? And so what it tries to do, how does it try and keep us safe when it's faced with 5,000 messages a day, mm. right? That's a challenge for the brain. and so out of pure necessity, it's trying to rule out as many things as possible. It's trying to filter out as many things as possible so that it can only focus on what it has to focus on. And what's interesting is you might say, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll get through to, um, uh, I'll get through that pretty easily. Well, here's the problem. The old brain is very adamant that every message must pass through its security gate before it will pass it on to any other part of the brain. So if, Going back to your question, right? The sea of sameness. If you are part of the sea of sameness, if your message is similar to others or if it's perceived to be the same as others, the old brain in its prediction engine mode is going to say, filter out, not worth my time, not worth, nothing here to see people, move on, move along, <laughs> right? And it won't even allow the other parts of the brain to process that information. And, and so you really need, by necessity, if you want to get through and if you want to, if you want to fight through all the noise and uh, break through and get noticed, you have to deviate. You have to deviate. And also what's really great to do, surprise your audience. So deviation is fantastic because it breaks away from the prediction engine. If you're deviating, if you're doing something completely different, then the brain takes notice. And then the old brain says, oh, okay, well, this is, this is new. I'll pass it along for processing now, <laughs> right? And so you can break through that, that clutter. Now, surprise is really interesting in that it's, it's different than deviation uh, in, in that, you know, you're physically trying to make someone feel the emotion of surprise, right? And so the neuroscientist Gregory Burns uh, down at Emory University took a team and, and studied a group of people where they uncovered that the human brain actually enjoys surprise more than it enjoys things that it likes. Oh, wow. Very counterintuitive. So, so you would think, oh, I like 
cheeseburgers, right? <laughs> or I like, <laughs> I like chocolate cake, but, but actually our brain enjoys surprise more than the things we like. It's amazing. So, so as a marketer, let's translate this, right? What that means is in our marketing, what we want to do is deviate. Deviate, deviate, deviate. And not only do we want to be different, right? Not only do we want to be different than everyone else, but we want to surprise you. The more that we can deviate and surprise you, the more that we're going to go back, going back to your question, we're going to be able to, to break through this sea of sameness and all of this clutter all around us and this information overload and capture the attention of our audience. And the good, the good part about this is that oftentimes you can connect that with emotional marketing. And so, you know, look, look at a company like uh, Blendtec. So they make blenders for your kitchen, okay? Just, you know, food processing blenders. And, okay, the, the way that that market tends to sell their, their wares is they'll, they'll make a dish and they'll show you making a dish. That's fine. That's fine. But what Blendtec did, it was really interesting. So George Wright was the new VP of marketing at the time, and they had a budget of, I think, zero, or maybe it was like $5, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was really low. And so George had this problem where he was, he was trying to sell blenders, uh, which by their, their very nature might, might not be considered terribly sexy, uh, and he had no budget. And one day he was walking through the factory and he saw the founder and the president of the company putting a, a two-by-two -two board into one of his blenders. And, you know, there was sawdust everywhere and, he, you know, he mashed the thing up. It, it, he completely ground it to, uh, to, to dust. And so George said, what are you doing? And it turns out that that was the way that the founder tested the power of the blades in oh, their products. Wow. And so he would put all sorts of crazy things into the blenders to see <laughs> just how far he could take it. And so George got an idea and he said, wait, we're gonna turn this into our marketing. And he, he got a camera and he put the president into a scientist lab coat and they created a laboratory, will it blend? And they started doing scientific oh. experiments and they tested golf balls, and they tested diamonds, and they tested marbles, they tested a rake, they tested a Justin Bieber CD. They, <laughs> <laughs> they tested everything, they tested an iPhone, and they got over 50 million video views wow. on their videos, and uh, sales skyrocketed, and it, it, you know, if, if they had tried, well, they, they didn't have the budget to do advertising, and so they couldn't compete that way. And if they just tried doing the marketing that others in the industry traditionally did, then, then they would have been lost in this sea of sameness. Instead, they did something unthinkable, and they came out with something which was a total deviation from the norm, surprised anyone who came across their videos, and the revenue, uh, well, the revenue growth really proved that... I sit down and if whether I'm, you know, consulting with the group or uh, representing them as a, as their attorney, first thing uh, I sit down is explain to them that this is federally illegal. And and that's uh, and and that's an interesting conversation depending upon who the person is sitting on on the other side of the table. I mean, often people realize that but don't necessarily understand the uh, the implications of uh, of that for for me I kind of crossed that bridge long ago uh, but it is uh, it does often deter people from getting involved in the uh, in the in the business or or, uh, or industry 
I think too, it's kind of a difficult industry to wrap your mind around for, for many people too, because I feel like the, the real issue is the fact that it's always kind of been popular in culture even though it's been illegal, but it is, it's had its power or its kind of emphasis throughout our culture for many, many decades. And then also you have the fact that, well, you have states that are saying, okay, well, you can sell it for this reason or that reason. But yet at the same time, then you have the actual country saying, well, federally, this is illegal. And so it's just like, which one of these doesn't belong? It just, it doesn't feel like it mixes together. It's like putting a, a star peg through a circle hole. And so I can see where, at least from my end, not knowing much about the marijuana, or I should say cannabis industry, understanding that and actually having that really hit home. That dichotomy is, is very difficult to explain. It has been, you know, the beginning of litigation. It, uh, it, it certainly, uh, something is, uh, is behind. Uh, and, you know, those of us who, who work in the cannabis industry think that that is, you know, the placement of cannabis in Schedule 1 uh, of the Controlled Substances Act. I mean, it, in, in my opinion, it has no business uh, being there with, you know, substances like heroin. I mean, we're saying it has no medicinal value by placing it there. And, but yet, you know, all of these states have, have passed the, those laws. And uh, in some ways that, uh, that shows, uh, you know, the beauty of our republic, but also the, the challenging aspect of it is what happens when those uh, issues come in direct conflict. You know, that is playing out every day in places like Colorado, where they're, uh, you know, they sold... Uh, approximately $1.2 billion worth of cannabis and wow. generated $200 million for the state of Colorado. And while that's not, that $200 million is not a significant amount in the, you know, multi-billion dollar budget that they have there, it's still money that didn't exist before. And not only that, it's money that was, uh, you know, going into the hands of, uh, of, nefarious individuals or groups, uh, you know, including cartels and gangs. And and uh, now it's going into the hands of individuals who are trying to operate their businesses by the rules uh, and paying taxes and, uh, you know, all of the things that, uh, that businesses uh, in any other industry uh, – do uh, unfortunately, the, there are still many challenges for those businesses, uh, including uh, access to banking, uh, certain provisions of the tax code that uh, you know make their tax burden extremely high because they uh, can't deduct certain expenses, and so it's uh, and again, it's that that uh, kind of state federal conflict. Or that that really is the the genesis of that. It sounds like if um, somebody does want to get into the industry, they do have to have a passion for it, and it's something that they have to um, really understand what what they're getting themselves into. You can't even look at it just from a business perspective at that point, but also from a social perspective, understand what it does for society and the impact of having regulations on something like this, depending on your belief of how it should be regulated and whatnot, but. Just having that impact on society, I think you, you have to have that understanding and appreciation. Otherwise, you're just going to have a huge headache on your hands. It's certainly not a get get rich quick scheme. You know, <laughs> they talk about the green rush in many places. Well, uh, 
like most small businesses, these businesses struggle, you know, to become profitable. And, and, and not only are they faced with the other, the obstacles that any businesses are faced with, they're faced with these additional obstacles that we talk about. And, and what, what you do find is that many of the people uh, are in the industry for, uh, yes, they see it as a way to make a living, but it's that, it's that passion and, and that uh, kind of, uh, you know, the overused term. Um, social entrepreneurship, you know that. That, but you, you're you're absolutely right, Evan. I mean, that's what that's what drives it. You you have to have that additional passion, or else there are so many other ways. To-